terms of uh, manipulation of, say, uh, new drones, furies, and the likes, um, which can carry a little bit more payload, but at the same time are more flexible in terms of um, both uh, travel time and uh, deflection, because most drones can be spotted easily. There's good um, anti-drone guns already in uh, theater. So in order to drop something very neatly, as we have seen with this one video where a grenade was dropped into the top of a car, what do you expect to be the next thing there? So if they start getting these more advanced uh, drones or lorry munitions or whatever you want to call them, um, you're probably going to see the the Russians try to counter it with uh, their EW systems like, what is it, the Lear 3. Um, they might start moving those things closer to the front lines uh, to try to blanket out the signals. Um, I don't know how effective those systems are against these drones because uh, obviously everything has a different frequency and typically the EW systems don't just jam everything. They only jam one frequency or this frequency or like a group of frequencies, I believe. So um, Russia is going to try to counter it somehow. Hopefully they move their more expensive systems in and then the artillery or HIMARS or whatever can hit them. Um, I think you're going to see them used a lot more once some of these non... The U.S. systems are they're overly complex. They're always hard to use. If you look at like the... Even if they're anti-tank stuff, you have an AT-4. You have like seven different movements you have to do to shoot the damn missile. Uh, the Matador that the Germans make, you have a trigger safety and you pull the trigger. Um, so... The more non-complicated drones that come in country... But the Matador is in, in theater. Yeah, we have the Matador. Uh, the uh, as We call it the Matador. I don't know what the actual name of the rocket's called. It's the one that can be used as a hash round or an anti-tank round. You pull the tube out the front and twist it. CJ, you had a question. Oh, yeah, it is a Matador. Yeah, we got him in theater. Yeah, no, I wasn't sure what that was. I want to make sure Ryan was good. Um, See, so, you know, you've gotten a chance to be a part of, you know, of course, the U.S. Army, you know, the, the SDF, or sorry, the Kurds, more specifically YPG, and, and now the Ukrainian Army. In your opinion, where do you see the, could you kind of, you've probably already done this, but could you measure the progress of the Ukrainian Army in such a short time? I mean, you've seen it now definitely probably at its worst point you know, being caught off guard with the invasion and then watch it grow both in, you know, numbers, resolve, and also equipment. Kind of where do you see their, their trajectory going in terms of do they still have room to grow? Do you think that, um, you know, there's still challenges ahead in just terms of, you know, general structure and organization, et cetera? Or, yeah, just trying to kind of get your thoughts moving forward here where you see their path in terms of as a professional fighting force. Yeah, so I actually wasn't with the YPG. I went to Syria briefly, but not YPG, but with Kurds. It's confusing. There's a lot of little groups. Um, I was mainly with Iranian Kurds, Iraqi Kurds, uh, Bashar, Rojaladis. But um, as far as the command structure and everything going forward, and just the overall picture of Ukraine going forward, they're going to have a lot of growing pains. Um, they've had to recruit a lot of people real quick. I think they can work through it, but they need Western advisors to ensure that they don't the, the, they keep moving forward outside of the Soviet-era leadership management that will bog them down if they get stuck in that cycle just because it's a quicker route to get stuff done. Um, because it's quick, but it also doesn't provide the proper logistics, obviously, the proper training. Um, as long as they can keep it Western-focused, whether and I'm not saying like they have to be spot on like the American Army. I'm saying like Western-focused as far as like how our logistics is set up, uh, how our management on that set up, how the chain of command and the training goes. That's going to be their biggest issue going forward is literally logistics and training these guys that they want to send to the front, training them quickly and training them efficiently or as efficient as you can during war. Um, that's going to be a huge growing pain going forward. If they can unfuck those areas, then, you know, it's going to be, they're going to be a more lethal and deadly force that will be able to, you know, hold out the Russians or even be able to push them back. But they really have to get their training and advising done a lot better, uh, like train the trainer stuff. And then they also really need to work on their logistics. I'm not talking just because of how slow, like, the heavy weapons come to the front. 
um, that's going to be a given. But ensuring you know this unit has this, this unit has has this support, and ensuring like all the back end support for like the the units itself is there uh, because it's lacking sometimes. And when it's lacking, it hurts the readiness of certain area of operations, um, which then hurts the frontline units currently fighting. So uh, going forward, though, I think as, lo as long as they can keep adjusting fire on how they're operating and fixing the deficiencies, they'll be fine. If they don't, it's not going to go over well. Um, they're going to have a higher attrition rate. Um, equipment's not going to get where it needs to be. It's not going to get fixed when it needs to be. So, I mean, there's a lot of hurdles. They can get over them, but they need the West to, you know, shadow them a little bit and make sure it's done in an efficient manner. Push and pull. That's what it's going to be. So, Brian, the question has been, what has been your best experience in Ukraine? I have to go through all the questions because we've been bombarded with DMs. So, there's a couple of things which are very personal, which I will spare you for the moment, but... What has been your best experience in Ukraine since you're there? I would say, like, most memorable. We were fighting in Moshun, and we we're, we're in a trench. Um, this was, like, right when we got there, and before we assaulted into the village, we were sitting in a trench yelling at each other for just because it was absolute freaking chaos. Like, we had literally just met every... So our unit met, like, maybe 18 hours ahead of time. <laughs> so it wasn't... It was a very quick introduction into combat. Um, but I would say... At one point, I turned around and there was a lady trying to hand us, uh, God, what are those things called? Uh, oh, what's there? They look like dumplings. They're they're like pelmeni, they're like, pierogi, or what was it? The first one, pelmeni. Yeah, they were. She was handing them out to the the guys in the trench. It was the weirdest thing I've ever seen. Like we're in the middle of combat, arguing with each other, and there's a there's a, a local gal handing out freaking dumplings in the trench. It was so weird. But uh, it's funny. I still talk to her. She lived through it too. Uh, she's also still in Machine, living in a broke down house. Um, she's still like the nicest lady you'll ever meet. But yeah, that was like the weirdest thing I've ever seen. But it was also funny. And was, I don't know. It was like a morale booster at the same time. It is the weirdest form of combat food there is. Well then, okay. Well, all the other questions are going into the direction of what you're going to do after the war and the likes. And that would have been my closing question as well. So what happens? You just spoke about this. Train the trainers, passing on experience, guiding people how to do things better in the future. What happens to Ryan when Ukraine has won? Um, <clears throat> honestly, I haven't thought about that. I might get back into politics. I don't know. I guess we're gonna have to see. We'll have to see how the war progresses. Um, yeah, I don't. I don't know. I, I haven't really thought what I'm gonna do after the war. Uh, yeah, I, I, I'm actually unsure. But I like politics. Um, I was pretty active in it. Like I said, I was running for U.S. Con for the Iowa Fourth District congressional seat for the you know at the Fed level uh, for the 2022 election. I dropped out to come fight. <clears throat> so I I don't know what I'm going to do after this. Honestly, we'll see. There's always options. Well, I think Ukraine will always want to have you. More than likely, it's nice here, but I don't know. I like my state. I like Iowa. Well, you know, building bridges between uh, the United States and all those wonderful states in the Midwest with all their economic strength and their long-term economic I mean, build-up and wisdom and capital. And Ukraine, on the other hand, can only be beneficial. And combat warriors have rebuilt Europe after the Second World War, and we will yeah, have to rebuild was... Ukraine. I was going to mention that. I, so actually, I did plumbing, electrical, and HVAC work too. So I don't know. Maybe I'll help rebuild everything that got blown up. We'll see. Um, I think the end of the war is a long way off. Um, so I'll be sitting in trenches and getting hit with artillery for probably quite a while, unfortunately. So how do we keep in touch? Um, I'm off and on here. Usually, like, I'll just throw something up when I – I mean, I'm on and off here all the time. Um Obviously, if I'm sitting in a trench or doing an operation, I don't have my phone on me. Um, but, I mean, really, just check my Twitter page. I'm usually on it. So, Well, whenever you feel that you need to talk to people and tell people what you need, um, just dial into this one here. We will be there. As uh, CJ knows, we've been here since the night before the invasion, 24-7, and we won't leave until Ukraine has won. Awesome. No worries, mate. We support you. We all stand in awe in 
mean, this is the thing. Everybody, uh, and some of us are a little bit older, including me, we can't do what you can and you are compelled to do. We stand in awe of what you do. Do it violently. Do it successfully. Hit them hard. Definitely, and hopefully one day nobody has to do this anymore, but, you know, we'll see how humanity grows in the future. Yeah, it's humanity, you know. CJ, you have no, a I was gonna, statement. I do. Well, you know, Ryan probably knows this, of course, but there's a senator from Iowa who uh, also spent a decent amount of time in Ukraine. However, she was doing something very different than Ryan is doing. So I do hope Ryan comes back, even though he's not in my congressional district the second, you know, uh, hope he continues to make a difference because he's certainly making a, a huge difference here. So we'd love to have him make a difference back in the States as well. So, yeah, we just can't thank you enough. And we really hope you stop by again, you know, day or day or night. You ever get bored in a trench and you just want to check in, we'll, we'll pepper you with questions again. And, you know, hopefully things are going even better than they were today. Definitely will. All right, people. Give a big hand to Ryan. Uh, have a good night, you guys. So, people, Ryan O'Leary, an American hero, a Ukrainian hero, a defender of freedom, a wonderful Iowan, and a conservative Democrat. The center must hold. CJ. Yes, well, no, I mean, uh, <laughs> having lived in Iowa a significant amount of my life, you know, uh, Pretty much everyone is conservative, and but in a slightly different way. As as you said many times, Axel, it's probably uh, the closest you could get to a true moderate. So hopefully the best of both sides, and not the worst, as, as we hope. See, hope is not lost. Nick, no, I just this 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 is a question. This is about three hours ago, and I've just been listening to Ryan. Just so you know, I can't begin to imagine um, what life is like for that guy. And, you know, just full of admiration. Um, we were, a few people were mentioning the Finland and Sweden and Turkey situation. And it looks, I think, as we discussed here, you know, and people said, oh, Turkey's, Turkey's going to block it. Why can't we kick Turkey out of NATO? And it got sorted. How long has that been? Three or four weeks, there's been some horse trading. Um, sadly, it looks like the Kurds are getting a little bit thrown under the bus, uh, which kind of always happens to the Kurds. So I do hope that since there's no mechanism for throwing anyone out of NATO, that about four weeks after their accession is finally ratified, that Sweden and Finland resume whatever it is they're doing in terms of helping Kurdish people, at least locally, um, because we, we need some time at some point in the next century, because we've taken a century to not do it, to actually find time when the Kurds don't have to be thrown on the bus because there are other people we have to keep happy. Yeah, just because there is an agreement in public does not mean that the Kurds will be thrown under the bus. No, but publicly, they've officially been thrown on the bus and Erdogan will tell his people that he's had a, a great victory in that in that area and, and things have got a bit quiet. Um, but... Uh, um, I just, I just always feel, you know, it, it's just like, oh, my God, yeah, guess who ended up getting shafted as a result of this war? Yep, the Kurds. And to some extent, they will. Not that, not that, not that Erdogan needs much of an excuse to give them hell in you. All righty, gentle people. I shall be handing over to Heliana in a minute. And uh, CJ is also there. CJ, take it away. Yeah, no, I just wanted some more thoughts from you, Axel. You know, obviously, Ryan's cynicism was you know, well-placed towards certain aspects of the International Legion. But, you know, the comments about America, I thought were quite interesting. You know, I was trying to give him an out to, you know, not necessarily take a hit at the U.S., but to kind of, um, you know, see what could be done better. But, you know, basically him saying that, you know, everything that was being done was, was pretty much all that could be done was, you know, we weren't always at this point in time, but the fact that we might be getting close to it is encouraging, I think. I, I'm just curious your thoughts. Yes, indeed. The key aspect which we're facing at the moment is that the United States of America is the only nation on the planet, together with the Brits, who can actually force the hand of the Europeans, push them over the edge. To an extent, this has happened this week, but it's not enough yet. Indiana, can you take over, please? Absolutely. Thank you, Axel. And um, Walter or Battlemoose, or somebody could please move me up to co-host. 
as well as CJ once Axel is down. All right, I believe Yuha, you have your hand up, and um, I'm not sure of the order, so you guys could self police. I would really love that. <laughs> I'm afraid I was quicker. I just wanted to uh, come back short to this uh, comment from Nick that um, throwing Kurds under the bus. Well, uh, not exactly. Uh, at least from the Finnish standpoint. Basically, uh, as I see it, the uh, treaty with the three parties, which was signed today, doesn't actually change that much for Finland, because Finland has and will be uh, treating the terrorist organizations, which are defined internationally to be terrorist organizations, uh, according to the laws and they're, they're, it's just the same as we have been doing so far already. And the President Niinistö said in his Finnish press conference today something quite interesting. Uh, in side note, he said that many uh, misperceptions have been clarified also during the negotiation. And I assume that this uh, might be one of those misconceptions that the uh, it might not have been quite clear what is the actual legal status uh, of the uh, terrorist organizations in the Finnish legislation and what Finland is actually doing against terrorism. But I'm glad that this has now been been, been clarified. And basically, uh, well, what what could I say? The Finnish people say just. That's, that's what the Finnish people say. Thank you. Comments from anyone? If not, then I believe it's Luca. And... Sorry, I have just one, one more thing uh, to this to this uh, um, these negotiations and this treaty. But I think you have. Uh, we we can't hear you. Is that correct? Okay, we can't hear you. You have. I'm sorry. Um, I suggest that you drop down out of speaker mode and um, make another request, and hopefully get the audio fixed. Luca, you're next, please. Um, oh, yeah, uh, good, good evening. Um, let's see. Yeah, the, the, the curves. Yeah, I okay. So, yeah, I, I was happy that I, I expected it. I called it that, uh, you know, nothing would happen. Of course, Sweden and, uh, and Finland was going to join. And um, how, what, what happened to the curves? I mean, yeah, I know they always get thrown under the bus. But what happened this time? I, I missed it. I think he was referring to some of the negotiations in regards to getting... Um, similar to Sweden into NATO, you know, that they weren't going to uh, continue to sanction Turkey over their their actions in, in that regard. However, you know, I guess my comment on it would be based on the initial quote-unquote wish list from Turkey, including, you know, things about the S-400s and F-35s, you know, Turkey did not get everything they wanted from this negotiation. And obviously it wouldn't have been agreed to unless it was what's best for all of NATO. So, I mean, and I'm also trying to avoid us going down the uh, Kurdish rabbit hole because it can go a long, long, long way. So I think that's what he was referring to. Uh, okay. Uh, so maybe more of a political statement. Wait, you uttered the magic word F-35. No, we didn't give those to Turkey, right? Say no, not given. No, they, they had wanted them for some time. And, and one of the preconditions, allegedly, again, I don't know the, if the, the wish list was 100% accurate uh, in terms of what they would need before they would agree to allow those countries into NATO, but it was not part of the deal made today. Yeah, I mean, I already had said like uh, some times ago uh, when we were talking about radar and, and machine learning, I had explained uh, how um, someone that owns a... Uh, advanced uh, let's call it advanced radar enemy radar system like the s400 and at the same time owns the most advanced uh, stealth jet plane can effectively in my opinion fly the jet, jet that said jet plane in specific locations and use said enemy radar system to collect the data and then use machine learning to and stealthify the stealth. I'm fairly certain that because of that, you know, Turkey will never get the F-35. So I'm I'm glad that we didn't give it to them. Thank you. Thank you, Luca. Thank you, Luca. I don't know. I just got cut off. Um, uh, between G Gunter and Alex, I'm not sure who's next. Sorry, I'm I'm 
setting Alex. up. All right, thanks. Alex, please go ahead. Thank you. Yeah, uh, I think uh, CJ asked a question. So there was uh, pretty much a comment that US is doing everything it could. Uh, you know, I think it's, it's a debatable, but you never know. Um, at the end of the day, what matters is outcome and, uh, and the end game. But frankly, I do not even know what the end game here is. Like, to some extent, there is a, an argument that this whole thing could have been avoided. And uh, I'm not sure whether there is a merit to that. But, um, but uh, it looks like Russia is trapped. And, um, yeah, maybe there is a time for everything. Like, uh, definitely U.S. can do a lot of stuff they are doing now. They could have done it earlier. Like, certainly earlier. They could, because, uh, you know, four months later they are doing it anyway. Say, if U.S. has announced that they would provide Ukraine with air defense, uh, anti-tank missiles, anti-aircraft missiles, and this and that, and training, and um, would Russia even attack? I do not know. That's still an open question. Like, it would definitely, we, we can speak long hours that Putin miscalculated, but at least he would have, or maybe he was even told all that stuff. I don't even know. But I don't think so, because we were hearing even in public that U.S. will not do this, U.S. will not do that. It's only like a few weeks um, that we haven't heard anything like that anymore. Because you don't really want your enemy know what is it you are not going to do. Uh, so that's debatable. Um, but at the end of the day, like I said, what matters is what is the end game and what's the big picture here? Um, because we may not even know this. Uh, do we have to wait for attack like today to give them anti-aircraft missiles? I think we lost you, Alex, unless you were done. <clears throat> Alex, did you, did you end your uh, question with, with asking about the missiles and how long it would take to get them in country? Um, hello, can you hear me? I got you, Alex. Can yeah, you hear us? Yes, I can hear you. Sorry, somebody was trying to call and they, uh, I got interrupted. But basically, uh, the question is, do we have to wait for attack like uh, yesterday on that trade center to give Ukraine anti-aircraft missiles? I do not know the answer, frankly. Because you can argue that, yes, we should do give it up front, but then there will be so many voices saying, oh, this is escalation, let's not do this, let's not do that, and why? There will be so many questions. So cynical, yes, but maybe we have to, we have to basically put in show all his ugly face to basically give the response he deserves, because... Like, even a few weeks ago, not everybody was on the same page with regards to what needs to be done. So, um, hard question, but definitely, I don't think there is one clear answer to that. No, great points, Alex. I just want to be absolutely clear. You're, you're exactly right when you say, you know, if a country's best isn't giving the results yeah, it needs, you know, how, how worth how much worth does it have in, you know, in the case of when I was in Afghanistan last, last summer, you know, my best quote unquote was getting, you know, a lot of people out of country, but you know, that doesn't really mean much now that the Taliban control the whole thing. So I completely understand. And, you know, in the comments with Brian, what I was trying to get to was at this point in time, you know, they, they, the fighters on the ground feel as if nothing more can be done just to, to continue it and to increase the volume of weapons, but it's not like they're waiting on a, some new piece of kit. And to your other point about, you know, what should the response be? You know, the anti-aircraft missiles, the NASAMs that the U.S. is going to purchase for Ukraine, you know, that was, that's was that been in the works for a little while. I think the announcement came the day before or the day of the uh, mall strike. But you'll notice, you know, quite uh, fortuitously, the Ukrainians have responded on their own with a possible strike in Kursk airbase where possibly – those bombers that, that dropped those cruise missiles came from, again, nothing is exactly confirmed, but it seems like now Ukraine has the capability to to, to take care of Russia in, in the, the ways they see fit. They just need, you know, 
they need for us not to stop now at this point, of course, when, when, you know, there's still a long way to go. So, um, great point. Sorry, did they take out those bombers in Kursk? Well, again, so all we know so far is that there was a large explosion in the vicinity of the airfield, and Russia claims that a drone was shot down. However, if you look at the amount of smoke, that is uh, no drone going down. It's way too big. So it's either an explosion or a gigantic drone. Oh, that would be awesome. They, they definitely deserve it. Uh, yeah, so, um, but even today, you know, um, can anything more be done? Like, my point is, to, to, if the question is at this point, um, you know, it depends on what level you are. Like, for somebody fighting in trenches, that's one view. I would more rely on General Ben Hodges. Um, I think he he essentially said what else can be done and will be done and is on the way, by the way. Like, uh, for example, capabilities to do, uh, to fight the GPS jamming because apparently it's kind of, it, it may be an issue. Um, scaling up logistics, uh, training Ukrainian troops, like that whole transit trainer thing. Um, there are quite a few things in the works that um, needs to be done. And uh, yeah, it depends. Like, you know, at, at some level you see the roots and you can see the problem at the root level. Then somebody sees a tree above those roots and somebody sees the forest beyond the tree. So it's all uh, depends on you. That doesn't mean to say that for people in the field, they can have great insight, by the way, something that at uh, general level you wouldn't have. Uh, like uh, that thing with switchblade, if this guy knows how to use switchblades and if Ukrainian army has some kind of issue with switchblades, maybe he is more effective training on switchblades, other folks. Uh, maybe he's an excellent fighter, but like, uh, you know, it's all about unique skills and how you can be most effective. I I'm not sure. Um, again, j just thoughts. No, thank hey, you Alex. so much, Alex. We appreciate hey, Alex, it. This is Tom. I I'm sorry, CJ. Um, I was just going to throw something in about the navigational warfare and GPS um, re related items. Um, it's just merely impossible to fight the NEF warfare um, since 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 Excuse the um, Arno. What? Yeah, yeah. Arno. I'm sorry. Yes. We have um, a system here, please. So the way you get into the queue to become a speaker is you raise your hand. Do you know how to do that? I did try to do that, but it was neglected a couple of times. Um. So it's the heart with a plus sign. Okay, I didn't know that. Okay, I switch mute and then I raise it again. Thank you so much. Alex, please continue. Uh, I actually finished my point. I think CJ was uh, about to say something. I'm sorry, you are right. CJ, please. No, I was just going to say, you know, you're you're kind of exactly right. And this is why we have a wide range of speakers in, in this room, you know, to the best of our ability, because people offer different uh, experiences and perspectives, but very specifically, you know, you kind of got to the heart of it. You, you shouldn't necessarily trust people just because they have a rank, right? You also have to see, you know, where their support lies and how they speak, how they write. You know, there's a lot of different factors because if you're just uh, trusting an authority because they've, you know, been around a long time, they could be just as wrong as, you know, the Russian generals planning something and vice versa. So, you know, that Ryan, we're so lucky to have him. You know, he, he was a, a corporal in the U.S. Army, deployed twice, but really, you know, his vast um, – amount of experiences and knowledge came from, you know, after his military experience when he joined with the Kurds and fighting ISIS. And then now, you know, bravely in Ukraine when, you know, as he pointed out, a lot of U.S. veterans have not stayed or are not planning to stay. So, and you know, he spent years fighting ISIS. So I think he's in there for the, the long haul. But no, sorry. Uh, I think uh, Gunther was next uh, and we'll keep going here. Arno, if you want to raise your hand, uh, you'll be after Gunther. Well, hi, everyone. Greetings from uh, Oakland, California. Uh, one comment, which is that, uh, you know, like in, if you were in England in World War II in Coventry and you were like, your town was bombed, you would be pretty upset and say, this is a total fuck up. 
why was our town bombed? But the British, they had broken Enigma. They knew that that was coming, but they let the let it, the town be bombed so that they could keep the strategic asset. And I think with war, you have these strategic decisions that sometimes look like uh, you know fuck ups and failures and mistakes that we're not privy to, and that uh, and sometimes they are mistakes, but sometimes things there's like a broader plan that we're just not aware of. Um, secondly, I wanted to ask specifically about NASAMs and, uh, what I read on the Wikipedia page sounded like amazing. Like they can engage like 70 different targets at the same time. And, uh, my main question was the press release I saw said something about, uh, us providing, providing Ukraine with a system, but how much coverage does this system, uh, have like, that, that's my question. Like, how is it? Is this going to just protect Kiev, or is this going to be a broader thing? Thanks. Yeah, and Ukraine specifically requested NASAMS three. Uh, I don't know what is the difference between two three. Uh, I would love to hear that as well. Thank. You. Well, uh, you know, I'm not an air, I'm a yeah, fires expert and technically air defense. Is, well, sorry, let me go back a second. I'm I'm no expert. What I am supposed to know for a living is artillery. And artillery and air defense are two related branches within uh, the same sort of fire center of excellence. All I can tell you is really about employment. And, you know, it's, because this is an American system, it's not something I know. But what I will say is these sort of systems can provide, um, you know, sort of point your area defense, just to break it down real simple. So, you know, point defense is basically, you know, you have a bunch of interconnected si systems protecting a single area like Kiev or a port or an airport, et cetera, et cetera. You know, these things come with radar, they come with the fire control, they come with a lot of different bells and whistles, and it will be up to the Ukrainians to, to use them in a way to, to basically paint a situational awareness, a picture, you know, a common operating picture, in order to better anticipate threats and then deal with them. So it's really going to be something that is good, um, is only going to be as good as it is integrated with the already pre-existing Soviet systems or Soviet-era systems like S-300s and all those smaller mobile systems. And so, you know, really the problem that Ukraine has right now is, you know, like if you look at the strikes on Kyiv and the strikes on Odessa, they're having a, basically a 60 to 70 percent interception rate. But really, Russia is launching, you know, when they're doing missile strikes, you know, minus the one on, on the mall, they're you know, sending about 20 missiles in the air at the time. And, and at that point in time, you're basically maxing out what's possible with very limited systems. So, even just, just the bare bones physics, the material of having more missiles available to cover a certain spot will be helpful as Ukraine, you know, paints this picture and understands what kind of things are coming in. Um, but that's kind of like the general overview. In terms of area defense, you know, putting them on the front and helping them with the already pre-existing conditions, you know, they are more of a static system, right? So they're more better suited to point defense, but you could put them, you know, in Dnipro or Odessa or some area that, you know, that's not going to move, you know, where troops are in and out. And that's probably where it's going to be best utilized as opposed to a mobile system like S-300s that can get up and go if they're spotted. So definitely will help more with the cities than, than on the battlefield, but still important nonetheless. Uh, if uh, it just seems like a, for many reasons, not just the humanitarian, but like if the missiles could be prevented from hitting cities and civilian targets, just that would be... Uh, that would be great on so many levels. It, it would, and this is the thing that you were kind of getting at with, you know, um, choosing to intercept fighters or missiles. There is, you know, there's there's a priority list, right? And as, as cold and as immoral as it sounds, there's probably a priority right now in Ukraine of defending military installations over everything else. And if they know a missile is incoming and it's way off and it's going to hit, you know, just an open field or something, they may not spend the time and effort trying to, hunt that down when they need to be focusing on ones that hit military targets. So it is sometimes a, a very quick choice that, that the people behind these systems have to make. And that's why giving them more opportunities to make that choice is just so important. So they can decide what they're going to spend effort on shooting and spend effort on uh, just avoiding and letting crash in an open field or a beach toilet in Odessa and so on and so forth. Okay. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Arno, please. Thank you. Um, I think I got the speaking rules now. Um, yeah, um, CJ, thank you for um, just pointing out that the main issue in air defense is integrating it. Um, that, that is the main issue. Um, 
Air defense needs targets. Air defense needs um, pointing to the targets. And if that doesn't happen, even NASM systems, which are very capable, are not able to do the job if they don't get pointed out where they have to shoot at. Um, I'm an air defense guy. It's um, hard for me to discuss that on an open line like like we're doing right now. Um, nevertheless, I think a whole bunch of things have to be redone in the defense of Ukraine. There's a lot more involvement required. There's a lot more of... Um, Let me, how should I word that? Um, there's a lot more of um, changes to be implemented, so it adapts to the way that we do air defense. Well, I guess uh, I would ask, Arda, well, yeah, what kind of changes would you like to see, considering that so much of their systems are of the Soviet model and, and type? You know, it's, it's not even, the whole reason NATO air defense is uh, made the way it is, as you know well and know, is to be kind of counter to it in a lot of different ways, both in, you know, the amount of electronics involved and also just the general task and purpose. So what changes do you think uh, Ukraine needs or help they need with this specifically? Well, um, first of all, I think this, um, there's a lot, of, a lot of integration needed. And um, now I'm frankly out forward. Um, there's a lot of help from us needed immediately to integrate it. And that is possible. And with the possibility of integrating it um, the way we are doing it, um, they would be way more successful. Um, it's um, starting at the early warning. It's um, continuing over the um, tracking um, down to the targeting. If we just aid more, there's a lot more, a lot more efficiency coming out of what is happening right now. Sure. And I think... Uh, and I'm, we, sorry. I, I'm sorry. I'm yeah. sorry. No, please. Um, I cannot be too specific about it because I would just uh, release too much more. Um, the thing is, there, there is some need, a lot of need, um, to do more than it's done right now. And by integrating it completely into... All the um, contracts that are done right now, um, if you integrate it more, it's going to be well more effective and it's going to raise hell on the Russians. No, I agree. You know, as, as NATO's um, air correction, as Ukraine's military comes under more and more NATO standardizations just naturally by the training and equipment provided, this is something I think will, that will improve over time. And we must not forget that, you know, they were able to to save a lot of these key air defense systems, the S-300s early on, thanks to, you know, foreign intelligence giving them a boost. And of course, their Air Force uh, fighting bravely and, and staying mobile, you know, that allowed them to be in this situation, which, you know, is not the greatest military situation to be in, you know, to be engaged with a, a war of a, with a country with 140 million people that want to wipe you out. But, you know, thankfully, Ukraine still has, you know, good air defenses left and they have a good Air Force left. So, um so, yeah, uh, if anyone else has any questions, wants to speak, we have, of course, Kev just joined us here, too. Uh, we love Kev. And if anyone else wants a comment or question, there's a lot of stuff going on across the country. We'll uh, talk it out and figure it out. And if you are not already a listener, I'm sorry, a, a speaker, um, and you would like to speak, then hit the request button on the lower left of your uh, device. Um, and once you are made a speaker, then um, please keep mute until we call on you. And to get into the line of speakers or queue of speakers, um, hit the heart uh, icon with the little plus sign and over to the far right should be a hand. And that's how we keep track of the order of everybody. So thank you very much. CJ, I don't know how much of the um, conversation you were able to be on um, because I wasn't listening in um, with Ryan O'Leary earlier today. Um, is there anything you took away from that that uh, you could impart to the audience, right? Yeah, sorry, I was just uh, responding to uh, a listener here. So, you know, what you could take away from it is someone that is, uh, you know, realistic, you know, very cynical in the, in the face of incredible adversity, you know, 
Ryan's not going to tell you probably the worst parts of what he's been through, but it, it's been quite awful uh, by any military standard, you know, to be not only <clears throat> getting shelled every day by a massive army, but to do it in a foreign country, a country where there's some language problems, a country where, you know, people are grateful, but, you know, they, they have other, they have bigger problems on their hands than making you feel comfortable or at home, right? They're trying to fight for their homeland. So, while they're probably grateful for, you know, Ryan helping, it, it probably wasn't the easiest time in so many ways. And yet he's still hopeful about the future. He believes the West is helping in a significant way. He wants to see more help and, and he sees a positive end. I mean, that's that's pretty tough to do for a soldier that's been in the trenches for, for that long, literally. I mean, in World War One and World War Two, which are the only comparable conflicts in, in recent memory to something like this of the scale you know, troops only fought on the front for about three to four weeks at a time, generally, again, very generally, before they're rotated out. And this this person has fought continuously for almost 120 days, you know, just an incredible feat of uh, human perseverance. So the fact he has the, the bandwidth to talk to us for so long, answer so many questions, and uh, just relate to us at, at any level just shows that you know, Ukraine is, is manned with great people and is going to win no matter how long it takes. Thank you, CJ. Sinal, do you have a question? Yes, um, very quick question, I think. Um, coming from New Zealand, I'm not sure about, I keep hearing Axel saying the centre must hold, and I'm not sure coming from here that what I think is centre, we don't really have sort of a centre here, as far as I'm concerned. Um, what does he mean? What does that mean there? Well, I, I'll, I'll give you my opinion on it. I know Axel is uh, asleep there, you know, after pulling a, a magnificent co-hosting shift for so long today. You know, uh, moderate, at least in American politics, has recently received sort of a negative tone, the, the tone of which, you know, someone is a bystander and not present. But I think the way Axel means it is the idea that you find the common ground and the common ground in democracy and, you know, the liberal order, and, you know, sort of classical liberalism and the idea that, you know, some things are more important than, you know, bipartisan politics. And so when he says the center must hold, you know, we must hold to these key central values of democracy and, and the, the freedom and sovereignty of all people, which, you know, is the hope and dream after World War II with the UN, but of course has been a hard path for many but I don't know if Teliana has a, has a different take on what he means by it. Yeah, I think um, it's basically, you know, trying to avoid being either the fringe right or the fringe left. And, um, you know, sort of in the middle of the political spectrum where compromise is, is a, a, a necessity in order to do anything. And where, you know, certain values are more important than um, certain f potentially fringe um, topics, let's say. Um, and, and you know, let's try to accomplish something together. So I think that's generally what he's talking about. Um, that's what I think of when I hear that. Um, I hope that is informative or I don't know. <laughs> Does that make sense to other people? Yeah, absolutely. That's that's what I thought. Um, I just thought, oh, I think I'd better check because I keep hearing it. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for the question. Um, we're getting more requests. Um, Mari, please. Yes, just wanted to quickly add that having a compromise with Russia is not going to, going to work. It's usually a very short-term solution. It's been proven again and again, and it's not unique to the current regime. We've got Minsk 1 and Minsk 2. We've got the Hasavid Accords, and then we had the peace treaty that was signed in '97. Uh, we had the Budapest Memorandum, and this the history keeps repeating itself. So, and it stems from the fact that Russia has never really taken responsibility and never carried the brunt of a, a massive defeat. And this time around is actually a very good opportunity to make it right and keep the Russian uh, make the Russians accountable and pay for their. Uh, past transgressions and the current ones. Perhaps it'll, it'll set them right for the future. No, I, and I couldn't agree more. And I think when people talk about, uh, at least in the, the space, at least the, the co-hosts when they say moderate or, you know, trying to find the uh, the balance, they, they do not reference, uh, or hopefully do not reference any sort of compromise with Russia, just more 
you know, the, the West and other countries that are supportive to Ukraine and how the struggle is finding the common ground in that, because as we know, international coalitions are difficult to hold together, even in the best of times. And so that's sort of, I think, what he's referring to, but, uh, but I completely agree. There's no time like the present for, you know, Ukraine with, you know, outside support, but mainly Ukraine to hand them, hand them a defeat. You know, it's, it's completely different than if a other countries step in to do it. Ukraine needs to do it, and uh, we'll make sure it happens that way. Um, Ryan, you had your hand up and you put it down. Do you want to? Do you want to say something, Ryan? Yes. Yeah, um, I want... Sorry, I can't stay in long. Um, I I'm just sitting here uh, regretting that Mr. O'Leary decided to withdraw from his congressional campaign so he could go and fight in Ukraine because I f- frankly feel a bunch of people probably would have gotten him elected in absentia. Um, what Axel's referred to about this being the center must hold is uh, centrist politics and people fighting for American values instead of uh, parochial, self-centered things and people leaning too hard into their uh, their own corner. Uh, partisan politics has run rampant here in the U.S. Uh, if you're not here, maybe you're unaware, but if you can Google up uh, congressional partisanship over time and find some pretty shocking graphic depictions that show that um, more or less our elected officials take direction from the top of their party and are more or less unwilling to cross political lines in the modern era. Uh, The one exception to that that we've seen in probably the last decade was the Lend-Lease Act that was passed on behalf of Ukraine. Um, We need to hold that center. It's virtually non-existent today. And Miraculously, we found our our uh, spine, I guess, for lack of a better term, in the last three months, and we've got to do everything we can, at least here in the U.S., to hold that middle ground, regardless of uh, swings of political party one way or the other. There's plenty of conservatives and plenty of liberals in here, and I think we're all tugging on the same rope, but it's... Uh, it's election day here, so I cannot speak for long. Thank you for letting me interject. I appreciate you guys. Uh, I appreciate Mr. O'Leary's courage, and I hope he can get back here and get his ass in another election soon. Thank you, Ryan. And I also want to thank you for your service because um, it's actually a little bit um, uncomfortable, if not worse, to be an election um, official or volunteer or um, whatever capacity you're working in today. So thank you very much. Um, and I also want to amplify what CJ said to um, Mahdi, which is, you know, Ukraine should should not and will not compromise with Russia. And we fully, wholeheartedly, um, incredibly support that. Um, what Ukraine decides to do is Ukraine's business. It's nobody else's, but we support whatever Ukraine wants to do. And um, we, you know, <laughs> uh, kowtowing to Russia is not part of that at all. No compromise. Uh, hands up for anybody who would like to make a comment or, or ask a question. Um, if you are not yet a speaker, please uh, put in a request. It's that little uh, microphone on your lower left. And um, I just want to say we would also greatly appreciate it if you would tweet this space. Depending on your device, it's either a blue plus sign or it's a blue scroll feather, you know, the old feather pen thing with a plus sign in your lower part of your device and um, retweet the space, um, add a comment if possible. And um, that greatly helps us increase our visibility. Anything you can say about Maria Aid, which is a nonprofit that has zero overhead because nobody gets paid to do what they're doing and a lot of times they're putting out their own cash um the volunteers i'm talking about and a lot of us here in this space um, myself included have donated money to maria aid as well as time um you know in a different kind of capacity than than the boots on the ground people um who are just amazing uh, procuring tourniquets and um, non-lethal drones and uh, all kinds of stuff that I can't even name because I'm not heavily involved in that angle. Um, but they're doing all kinds of stuff, getting free medical care for for uh, soldiers, Ukrainian soldiers who've been injured and bringing them to the U.S. when possible, 
to get free medical care, um, really life-saving medical care. So this organization is pretty, 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 yeah, I would use another word, but I'm hosting, so I need to be nice. Um, it's just an amazing organization, and anything you can give or just, you know, just promoting it by tweeting it out is is fantastic for us because not everybody has the means to donate a dollar or five or whatever so we appreciate all of the support that we get here and just by being here in this space you're also doing a huge favor to maria aid and to the entire question of you know the or issue you know ukraine a lot of people are getting um Maybe they're not aware, let's put it that way. They're not aware of what's going on. And this space is trying to keep people aware. So the more you are listening in, the more you tweet the space, it raises visibility, keeps people informed, and um, it's a it's an, an amazing help to us. So thank you for doing it. CJ, anything you would like to add? No, the only thing I would say is, you know, that Marie Aid recently sent some new drones of the of the Fury variety that are able to um, see much further, travel much further. You know, again, at Marie Aid, they listen to the requests of the Ukrainian government and the soldiers on the ground. You know, they're, they're not just sending stuff that isn't being used. They're constantly getting feedback on what they actually need, what works better, and they're making it happen. So a great organization that's making a real difference in, in saving Ukrainian lives. So... We got Alex back, which is great. Uh, let's go to Alex here. Thank you. Uh, I wanted to say it earlier, but there was not the right moment. It's um, if you remember yesterday, I th- there was information that President of Indonesia extended invitation to G20 meeting this uh, later this year to Vladimir Putin. And today there was information from Italian Prime Minister Draghi who assured that Putin would not be invited uh, on G20 meeting. And I think this is great news because, frankly, uh, I do not know what will be the the decision about uh, declaring Russia a terrorist state. Um, but the very fact that it's on that it is in work, to me, it's already, like, means a lot. And seeing Putin on G20 would be, honestly, I, I, I could have hardly imagined